Hey guys, this is Sam. Um, before we jump into this week's episode, some exciting news. Uh, Saxon and I, both of us, are going to be at Water and Music's Wavelengths Summit in beautiful, scenic Bushwick, New York on May 6th. So yeah, we're, we're excited about it. We're excited to, we love meeting folks live. We have a in a in a, a move of increasing podcast legitimacy we have a discount code that you can use that gives you 30 percent off speaker price of the ticket price it is wm dash speaker disc that's wm dash speaker disc for a discounted ticket to the water and music summit hope to see you all there okay let's do this episode saxon Another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. Saxon Baird with Sam Backer as always. And today we are going to be talking a little history, but a more, more, more recent history. We're talking blurred lines and all of its bad juju. <laughs> um, copyright has definitely been a hot topic this past week. Um, we supposedly AI generated Drake songs racking up millions of streams on TikTok and elsewhere. Um, the song in question recently got pulled from streaming services today. And uh, now like hello folks are talking about copyright and AI created music, which is here to stay will continue to be a story. But we're talking not so much AI created music and copyright, but a fundamental lawsuit that sort of changed the game, I guess, in regards to copyrighted music. And that and that's the Blurred Lines case. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Saxon, we've been wanting to do an episode about this uh legal kerfluffle for a while and i mean yeah i think i think that framing of kind of humming in the background the sense that there's about to be a whole new set of copyright legis copyright legislation maybe but certainly copyright like lawsuits you know the way things actually are legislated in this country lawsuits um that are that are really seems like they might really kind of uh, shape the landscape for these new musical technologies. And given all of that, we thought it was a really nice time to kind of, yeah, like you said, like take a step back and look at both this lawsuit itself and what it kind of tells us about copyright and how copyright works and how IP works in music. Um, and then also kind of suss out a little bit maybe how it's shaped the last half decade. It was five years ago, which is crazy to think about. This lawsuit went down, how it's shaped the last half decade of music and like how um, how that might change in the future, I guess. So uh, maybe let's like start with the with uh, discount Justin Timberlake, uh, Robin Thicke himself, and uh, <laughs> who who uh, is kind of an unlikely an unlikely star. And it was really started maybe with like a little Wayne remaking a Robin Thicke song on his The Carter 2, um, you, you, which you apparently you don't realize. <laughs> no. Bring yeah. bring the research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that that's actually what kind of uh, really started to propel his career a bit because um, he started getting sought out by hip-hop stars a bit, and um, which led to Pharrell signing him on Star Trek. And that led to a number of albums. His first album went platinum and which yeah, is actually the worst cover among the worst covers I've ever seen. It's like, he's like, in the kind of like a, like a, like a, like whatever the position that you are when you're like lying seductively on top of a piano, like whatever you call that position. And then he's like getting up. Like it's one of those like a uh, descent of man things where it's like, you go from a frog to like a full walking person. And it's, it's just terrible. And he's like wearing a suit and he's like, eh. she's absolutely among the worst album covers yeah, of all time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. I actually haven't, I don't know if, I don't know if I've seen it. Okay. It's bad. It's really bad. Okay. Let's like, do let's look this do up. Do it right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do it right now. The evolution of Robin Fick. <laughs> and your Google searches oh, are trash now forever. Oh God. This is really bad. What on God's earth? 
man. 2013 is a bummer of a time. (laughs) Dude, right? Literally, and I'm like not... I I speak in a lot of hyperbole. Um, That's one of the worst album covers I've ever seen. I mean, yeah, that's really, really bad. All right. Um, I will not link to it in the uh, show notes, but you should go Google that and feel terrible. Uh I mean, it is it is a funny moment though. Like, like actually, you called him like a, a like a budget uh, JT, a budget Justin Timberlake, and like it is this funny moment where you do realize like how far various musical conversations have moved in the past, I guess, um, decade now since the song was released, right? Like, a this is that post Amy Winehouse moment where like British soul singers are blowing up, like white British soul singers are blowing up. I mean, they're not just British. I mean, like Detroit or Michigan's very own Mayor Hawthorne. <laughs> I remember that. That was like a moment too. <laughs> Signed to Stone's Throw has a song featuring Kendrick Lamar. Excuse me. <laughs> but yeah, it's this funny like R and B is on top of the charts. This like Obama. It's a weird moment. Wait, is Mayor music. Hawthorne the budget Robin Thicke? I have, Sorry, no, okay. I have no idea who Mayor Hawthorne is. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. I don't want to know. Sorry. Continue on. It is a weird moment. This is also the moment when um, the kind of like post-hip-hop producers are ruling, like specifically the Pharrell on one side and Timbaland on the other are just running the pop charts. I forget what year it was. I think it was 2007 or 2008. Where Timbaland had eleven out of the top hundred songs on the American charts that year, just insane. Where they're doing, you know, they kind of all the tools that they developed making avant pop masterpieces in the late '90s, early 2000s, and they're just using them for evil, basically, or at least like for bags. You know, they're just taking their artistic credibility and turning out promiscuous girl which is actually a good song i like promiscuous girl that's man what a weird time okay yeah so that's the moment anyway that's the moment we're talking we're, about. yeah we're talking about right and like so like blurred lines 2013 drops and it's a hit it's written about at the time quite glowingly i mean then it's a hit controversy it, hits <laughs> i mean it's a hit because also there's like a notorious video yeah well so the so i was about to say like the controversy begins, and there is endless controversy about this song that just has, like, it's just born under a bad sign. Uh, they purposely get their video banned from YouTube by uploading a version with topless models in the original shoot of the video, which immediately, of course, violates terms of on YouTube. But that's, you know, all news is good news. So the song, because of the controversy, rose up the chart. It goes number one. And people kind of start to be like, you know, this song's on this video. It's kind of misogynistic bullshit. But regardless, the song is number one for 12 weeks. And that's that's a long fucking time. Yeah. I mean, like, even it's this funny thing where, like, even in 2013, like, we yeah, were like, even in 2013, this is this is kind of rough. Yeah. But not like immediately. But like people like I'd say like in the, in the beginning, like, people you're kind of like an outlier for calling it out, but people like are calling it out. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's kind of that like, uh, again, it's funny, like the extent to which this really was a moment in time. To me, it's this kind of very vicey, like Vice magazine moment where it's like before internet trolls became Nazis, right? Like when it was still like, people were like, oh, we're being like winkingly misogynistic. Critical theory light. We're like, we're being winkingly misogynistic. Not like we support the trad wife movement. Oh, I see that. Okay, you yeah. know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. this, it's to me, this all part of the same. It's like, wait, what's wrong with the trad life movement? Just kidding. No, Sorry. no, it's like I feel like they're being like it's this funny thing where they're being winklingly misogynistic, um, but they're not like we support the men's rights movement. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that hasn't um, happened yet. That hasn't happened nor yet. Do, nor so do like, Robin Thicke and Pharrell probably. They probably don't support that. To be no, clear. no, 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 no. <laughs> but it's this funny moment where like they're like, oh, we can like play with misogyny as like a fun sexy thing and people at the time were like i don't know if you can yeah there was a few people who called it out um i believe there was a vice writer who called it misogynistic bullshit as i said earlier the daily beast which you know think what you will about them uh called the song kind of rapey 
And then it was... That was the height of the Daily Beast era, too. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> and then also Robin Thicke didn't help his case by making some like dumb comments when asked about the misogyny in the song by saying something to the effect of, like, oh, I love degrading women. Like, I'm so happy. I never get to do that. Which, apparently, he was joking. It was like, he was taken out of context. Uh, and he claims that the writer didn't hear the sarcasm, which I think I will give that to him. I don't think he was saying that. There was probably some sarcasm there. But nonetheless, a stupid thing to say and misinterpreted also, in print. It, you know, as we will discuss later, it turns out that by Robin Thicke's own admission, he was high on Vicodin and vodka for every single interview he did regarding Blurred Lines. Oh, so, I thought like, it was like also uh, high on Vicodin and vodka for the recording of the song. I think, yeah, I think he was high on Vicodin. Is, yeah. is the point? So like, Low on Vicodin? <laughs> Who knows? Okay. Robin Thicke was loose, baby. <laughs> yeah, he was loose, for sure, for sure. Um, so do you, really quickly, I do want to like, do you remember when you first heard the song? Absolutely not. I don't even know if I've ever heard the song. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been to a wedding, so that, that's what you're asking. I mean, like, I, I don't, yeah. Okay, it's one wait, of those songs... Actually, I'm going to pause your pause and say that actually having worked probably over 100 weddings as, like, a catering bartender, that song got played at almost every single wedding. So just find that fascinating considering the, like, misogynistic controversy around it. Yeah, no, it... it... I mean, I don't, it's funny, it's one of those songs where it's like, it's so, it's like upper echelon car commercial vibes, you know what I mean? <laughs> Facts. But like, it kinda, it's kinda good. Like, it's really annoying and gets stuck in your head forever, and like, it's very, very, like, if you wanted, and, and I'm sure that there are deep cut productions that i'm missing in this so like listeners please do add us with brilliant late period pharrell productions but to me it's like such a clear on the on the on the slope that goes from the pure brilliance that is drop it like it's hot to the like bottomless pit that is happy (laughs) blurred lines to me is like where pharrell starts taking those brilliant sonic moves and taking his ability to make like quantitized drum machines incredibly funky but like starts just like pouring on the syrup (laughs) and like more and more more high fructose corn syrup till you get to to happy Oh yeah, happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, that's an interest. That's an interesting take and super fascinating. And I mean, yeah, there was something to the track. I mean, it was number one for twelve weeks. People liked it, uh, despite the ensuing controversy. And the controversy continued because after a few voices, journalists calling it out, and Thick making some dumb comments, there is the infamous VMA controversy with Miley Cyrus, which I was John there. Harmonica you were there. I was there. I was four <laughs> rows back. I was on the floor for that. Okay. Just learning this. It was wild. It was a and wild when, did, time. And when you were there watching it, did you find it, as John Carmonica later called it, a banner year for clumsy white appropriation of black culture? Yeah. 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 Big time. So this really, and I mean, I maybe think you were in there fairness, so you In fairness, I think that Robin... From the floor, Robin Thicke was an add-on to the insanity that was Miley Cyrus, and not even right. Not so, to, not, so yeah, so to be clear, like Miley, Miley Cyrus comes out and performs, and it, it's you know, she has nothing but like black dancers behind her, and they're like gyrating, like doing some like like fake cunnilingus on stage, and then like she's performing whatever her hit was at the time, and then Robin Thicke comes out after that song, and then Miley and robin do blurred lines and it results in at some point like miley cyrus has like a foam hand finger that that he's like gyrating on or something and it was just yeah it was it was it uh it caused a lot of controversy i'd say yeah i mean it was it's like miley doing that um 
can't and we can't stop and we won't stop produced by mike will made it so another brilliant black producer so um no yeah like from the floor what was weird about that was that it was definitely deeply uncomfortable and appropriative for whatever reason in one of the few times that this has ever happened i felt like Usually there's a weird controversy and the guy skates off free and the female performer like his career catches fire and burns. Check out like Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake at the Super Bowl. Um, In this one, like from where I was literally sitting, like Robin Thicke was a weird little addendum to what was clearly Miley Cyrus's show, which was incredibly uncomfortable. But I look from the perspective of like being pretty drunk in the on the floor like it was deeply uncomfortable the level of energy she put out on that stage was impressive <laughs> like it was like i think it was like always problematic but just like as a show in and of itself went over better live than on camera because i watched the videos later i'm like oh that's way worse than i remember it being <laughs> Also, like, you probably didn't have, like, a clear view or whatever. I had really good seats. Okay, okay. It was right, a weird right. moment in my life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, can cut, yeah we can cut all this, but, like, it's true. No, 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 no. Uh, but, but, I mean, but the point, the point being is that it, it caused a lot of controversy. And afterwards, like, they're, like, the sort of isolated complaints and criticisms of the song now, like, will contextualize within, like, this also being paired with this Miley Cyrus performance. Yeah. And basically, like there was radio bands there was protests from sexual abuse survivors and then it all accumulated to a backstage photo being released of robin thick basically at an after party with his hand on the ass of like a young blonde woman and robin thick had been like married for a long time and actually that was he was like a wife guy yeah he was a wife guy and actually like in a lot of his the initial sort of controversies around the song being misogynistic, he, one of the things that he said was like, oh, no, it's about my wife. Like, of course she wants to. We've been married for like 20 years. Like, that was like actually one of, one of the excuses that he gave. And so like not, not long after that photo emerged, his wife divorces him. And uh, this does not relevant for our story, but it's just so cringeworthy that I have to mention it. In preceding uh, concerts, apparently Robin Thicke would project a photo of her on like the screen behind the stage and and tell the entire audience yeah i'm gonna get my lady back i'm gonna get her back which is just really really cringe and awkward <laughs> uh, so the reason why we're bringing up all this sort of like backstory is because you know there is a chance that maybe the song is a hit it's on the charts for 12 weeks and it goes the fuck away. But the song had legs in the fact that it was constantly getting press with all this negative press, the VMA awards. And then on top of all that's happened, it's constantly getting this all this attention. In an interview, I believe in GQ, basically Thick admits that Pharrell and him were in the studio talking about his all-time favorite song, Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. And he said, damn, we should make something like that, something with that groove. And so... This becomes basically the cornerstone for the copyright lawsuit, the copyright the copyright lawsuit filed by the Marvin Gaye estate against the song Blurred Lines. Yeah. So, yeah, like like you said, Zaxon, in addition to all this cultural context, there was I think from fairly early on, like critically writing about the song, people are like, it vibes like "Got to Give It Up" by Marvin Gaye, which is that's correct. A, yeah, you know classic non-album like single only i think it's dropped as part of a greatest hits compilation uh banger yeah you know um that it sounds a lot like got to give it up this like classic 76 marvin Gaye song and i think it's it's in the critical discourse that like this is right but this is also this moment of like it's post amy winehouse it's retro soul vibes are back in a big way and i think it's kind of looked at as like something it really the the musical similarities are real but it's not until all this other stuff is kind of floating around and the song has continued to be this major center of attention and money right because again this was like it was 12 weeks number one but also it was just a huge song and and i also think that that uh i think you were saying earlier that you've seen it in like dozens of weddings it's the kind of song that gets added to like 
everyone's playlist and is going to generate residuals forever, right? This is not this is not a one-hit wonder that's going away. This is a one-hit wonder that you can play as a modern song after you play a Jackson 5 song and like that's money. And so actually there's two lawsuits. Uh really really three lawsuits yeah i'm glad you're gonna actually mention that yeah because because this this adds like something some some context that i think a lot of a lot of uh stuff written about this lawsuit the bloodlines lawsuit they don't mention the original lawsuits which is really interesting yeah so it's actually in amongst all this controversy right there are these three intertwined lawsuits um and they kind of and this legal background is actually really interesting for kind of understanding the dimensions of the case first you have kind of a uh I guess it's not a lawsuit. It's not kind of like a legal threat from the gay estate, which is Marvin Gaye's children saying, boy, this sounds like our dad's song, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and that's joined actually by Bridgeport Music Incorporated. And Bridgeport Music is a Detroit-based publisher that controls the copyrights for Parliament and Funkadelic. Uh, George Clinton's bands and has been, but is not affiliated particularly closely with George Clinton himself. This is George Clinton not having his own control of his own, of the publishing of his music. And Bridgeport Music is notorious for suing people when they sample P-Funk songs without permission. And given the fact that Everyone samples P-Funk songs constantly because they're, a, along with James Brown, like the cornerstone of disco and rap. They're like a very litigious bunch that George Clinton himself has a lot of beef and has been feuding, it seems like, uh, uh, for like decades with. So there's an in- initial kind of statement, legal statement by Bridgeport and by the gay estate saying this sounds a lot like... The songs um, Got to Give It Up and a Funkadelic song called Sexy Ways. In response to this, as the controversy is building, George Clinton comes out on Twitter and says, there are no samples of my material in this song. (laughs) And kind of, and it seems like there may have been a kind of off-road backroom agreement where unclear... Um, And we can talk about this a little bit more because actually, if there is copyright infringement in this song, it is probably from Sexy Ways and not from Got to Give It Up. (laughs) The initial verse melody of Sexy Ways and the initial verse melody of Blurred Lines are pretty much identical, where there's maybe a case there. Like, uh, maybe I'm not saying that... That for- but what you're suggesting is the possibility of George Clinton and Pharrell and company kind of being like, eh, you know, like, I don't want a lot. I don't want you to have that lawsuit. You scratch my back. I scratch yours. We're like um, supporting each other here. Like, I'm going to come out public and say that, like, this was this isn't this isn't there's, there's no there's no copyright, which in the kind of again. And, and we'll talk about this a lot over the course of this episode in this funny, like in between like the court of public opinion and the actual courts, like George Clinton coming out and saying there's no copyright infringement here publicly does make it harder to convince a court that there's copyright infringement. Yeah. And um, even if the publisher who is not George Clinton thinks there right. is. Right. And, you know, that actually goes both ways because, like, as I said earlier, the cornerstone of this lawsuit that the Marvin Gaye estate eventually brings against uh, Pharrell and Robin Thicke is based on this quote that Thicke gave or said it in a GQ interview about how like they really were trying to actually make something like the groove of Marvin Gaye's got to give it up. Yeah. So public statements go a long way, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah, for for sure. And, and and we'll kind of dive into that as you get into the lawsuit itself. So what happens then is that Pharrell and Thick, and note it's important here, Pharrell has like 70% or like 60% of the songwriting of the track. It is a mostly <laughs> Pharrell-owned publishing yeah. with like something like 60% Pharrell, something like 30% Robin Thick, and something like 13% TI. 
T.I. who manages to like gracefully extricate <laughs> himself from all of this. Like, was T.I. in jail at that has time? His own, Wasn't he... T.I. has his own set of legal right. complexities in this moment that we are not going <laughs> to comment on. And T.I. is like, uh, nope, no time for this. Uh, yeah. So in response to this like initial move from the gay estate, Williams and Thick sue the gay estate basically saying that like you are threatening our business and you've done damage to us and kind of preemptively sued them basically attempting to intimidate the gay estate into backing into backing down has the opposite effect it has the opposite effect yeah it not only does it not make the gay estate back down and make them go ahead with this and make it definitely a lawsuit. And the gay state then sues Pharrell and Thick and T.I., but T.I. gets out of it um, shortly thereafter. But also it seems that, like, the Pharrell's lawsuit is thrown out because of the very specific... This is we're going to get into different kinds of legal proof about how songs sound similar and what counts as similarity. But for this initial lawsuit, my understanding is that Pharrell's basically like, these songs are definitely not similar. And the judge is like, well, like these songs are so obviously not similar that you were doing damage to me by claiming that you might sue me for saying that they're similar. Uh, for the, the, You might sue me because they're too similar. And the judge is like, these songs are kind of similar get out of my court so then williams yeah then williams's williams's lawsuit's thrown out and the gay estate's lawsuit or they're combined in some complicated legal way but basically like the gay estate's lawsuit for damages for copyright infringement of blurred lines copyright infringement of got to give it up goes forward and goes to court and in court williams and his lawyers still like are pretty sure that they're, they're, they're going to win. And they go through a kind of like very detailed demonstration in court about how like while the two songs do share common elements, like a groove on the electric piano and the bass and accents on the cowbell, that the, actually the notes and the rhythms themselves are different and the two compositions are not even in the same key. So so yeah, let's get let's get into this. Because this is the... Basically, what's, this is where it gets really fascinating because... What you have here is the the kind of ripple effects of the previous several decades of pop musical practice and black musical practice and their interactions with the legal systems, right? If this if Pharrell was working in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, he would have sampled Got to Give It Up, right? The same way that De La Soul or the Beastie Boys or any number or like a tribe called quest were sampling songs and their inspirations. But in the wake of kind of hip hop's explosion in the wake of, of, of a um, kind of a series of lawsuits by the holders of recording copyrights against samples, the ability of people to use samples in music without it getting cleared by the original rights holders without it being cleared by the person who made the original recording gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed right and it's not just one law it's not just one court case it's a whole bunch of them where basically originally there's this idea that maybe there's like a, a minimum amount where if you sample less than a certain amount of the song you're in the clear and that gets demolished by the courts by the mid 90s then there's a, a, a whole discussion that's still ongoing of fair use and like is there if you're transforming the music enough does that mean that you like within kind of parody law basically like is there is there a way that you can have fair use of a sample such that it's not taking the other person's idea but you're actually using his raw material to transform it into something new and that's something that's still litigated today but all of which is to say, if you're a canny hitmaker, by 2013, when this song was being released, if you're a canny hitmaker, you're not, and you want to take home all the money, you're not going to sample stuff usually. 
you're going to try to write around it. And that's because there's a very different set of laws. Like we've discussed a bunch of time on the show, right? There's a very different set of laws between recordings, which can be sampled, and compositions, which can have their IP infringed on. Basically, we've said before, this composition, this is music publishing, right? Like the melody and lyrics and sometimes chords, but not usually, it's mostly melody and lyrics that's understood as containing the essential intellectual property of a piece of music. And those are that that the legal infrastructure that defines this is created in the early 20th century around sheet music and a piano-based system before recordings really exist or at the very beginnings of recordings in some ways and are basically not done with any imagination, any imagination of what recording studios are going to be able to do, right, with the, the wide range of tonal possibilities that a recording studio can can allow, and zero interest in, in any form, basically, of Afro-diasporic music culture, which means that rhythms are much harder to copyright, and rhythmic parts are not particularly easy to capture in sheet music form. Like, unless it's a drum solo, like trying to notate like a famous Motown drummer, like Bernard Pretty Purdy's like six eight swing, like music Western musical notation is just absolutely terrible at that. Like that's not what it's for. It can't do it. It would be a, like a nightmare to even try to use sheet music to act to capture like the feel of a drum, but a good producer like Pharrell and certainly like pop producers by 2013, like they know, like Pharrell's amazing at making drums feel a certain way. Pharrell's made millions of dollars making drums feel a certain way, but all of that is not able to be captured really in the sheet music. And more specifically and more pertinently in this case, it wasn't just like uh, uh, an abstract question is like, could Motown have had the drum part groove of got to give it up in sheet music form and deposit it in the copyright office, which is like, maybe, but the point is they didn't. They just didn't. And so as the gay estate is trying to sue Thick and Pharrell, they run into this very kind of uh, this very big issue for them right which is that <laughs> the songs sound really really similar but basically none of the musical elements that are in the official composition of the song share musical elements that are in the official composition of blurred lines even like big pieces of the song like the keyboard comping like i don't even think that's notated it's like it's which means that it isn't there and so that's where it's this kind of fascinating case like that's where probably like if this case had gone the way everyone thought that this case was going to go that's where it would have ended right because basically in these copyright infringement cases, <laughs> sorry to get too deep in the legal weeds here, but there we go. There's three elements that you have to prove. Number one, you have to prove that they had heard the song. Which was proven in the GQ. Uh, I mean, obviously they've heard it, but it was actually literally proven in the GQ interview. Um, it's also, and this is fascinating because in terms of one of the things we're going to talk about a lot today is the ways in which the legal infrastructure for copyright starts to buckle under the strains of early 21st century musical life, right? And and in ways that are all kind of interesting and fascinating in indicative ways. And one of the ways is that this idea of like that whether you had heard the piece of music is an important part of it is something that makes a lot more sense in the 40s than it does when like everything's on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. It's Did like, you have uh, access to the recording? It's like, yes, also, I have a Spotify subscription. I have access to every recording. Right. And so right, like, this exactly. legal, like, again, they didn't, they, like, the GQ really did help them here. But it, it's, it's like, it, that, that part is kind of collapsed as, like, a reasonable, um, as, like, a reasonable defense. That's one. 
Then there's something called an like extrinsic test. And that's basically a expert musicological analysis of the compositions in question. And again, this is to emphasize that given our Baroque legal system, there's the composition, which is the music and lyrics. Like if you bought and got to give it up in sheet music so that like your chorus teacher could play it in school. And then there's the recordings. And the recordings are an entirely different ballgame. And we know that there was no sampling. So those are just out, right? There's no piece of music in the recording that is the same piece of music that's in the recording of Blurred Lines. So you have are supposedly these two pieces of music. And from the pieces of music, from pretty, I mean, clearly the court cases he said, she said. He said, she said. Let me check. Clearly, the court cases he said, she said, but musical logical like analysis around it is like these are not the same songs. They've got a different melody, they've got a different key, they've got different lyrics. Like they're both verse chorus, but like so is everything else. Like if these two songs, and that's really key, I think, if these two songs could be found to be musically similar enough that Blurred Lines infringes on Got to Give It Up, almost any two pieces of music could be found similar enough that the lighter one would infringe on the former. Williams and Thick ended up having to pay something like a little over like $5 million in damages because of this, because they lost this lawsuit. And, you know, because of that, I think, and the very reasons that you're, the, the very reason that you just said, like there was like an amicus brief that was like, signed by like rivers cuomo and hans zimmer and all these different like hundreds of performers. yeah basically like this is going to be like an issue like <laughs> for for us um i think it actually quote by it said by eliminating any meaningful standard for drawing the line between permissible inspiration and unlawful copying the judgment is a is certain to stifle creativity and impede the creative process yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, right? Like, there's this worry that oh, all of a sudden, like, what's supposed to be the clear line between that would stop this, like, a a, a, a non-serious, like, non-real lawsuit from happening is obliterated. And I actually think that it's obliterated. And, and so there's a lot of question about, like, why did the judge behave in this way, right? Because the judge allows... Why did the judge allow... Because the judge... This is, like, there's a two-step process, right? There's extrinsic, where the judge has to allow it to have passed an extrinsic test in order to let it get to a jury stage when there's a intrinsic part where the jury can just sort of decide. And actually, it's not supposed to be musicological analysis. It's supposed to be, like, your average Joe listener, <laughs> So it's like this two, like A, can the average Joe listener tell? And B, can like experts tell? And I think my sense is that there's a lot of question of why the judge like allowed, basically in making an argument to the jury, allowed the musical experts to break all kinds of rules about um, basically like what the jury is actually supposed to be deciding on. That they played recordings of the songs, which they're not supposed to do because the recordings actually don't matter from a legal standpoint here. They play like mashups of the songs that uh, experts for the defense make. And basically like really stress, I think um, people thought that this kind of intrinsic like man or person on the street perspective of like, does this pass the smell test for being similar um, had like a far larger part of this decision um, given like how the judge was able to like structure what evidence was admissible or not admissible and like when it got to a jury and how it got to the jury. And and so there's a lot of questions of, like why the judge did all of this. <laughs> this is where we really get the exact legal minutiae of what the judge did really pushes the boundaries of my understanding, my ability to understand law review articles. Uh, so music lawyers, please explain, uh, please do email us and say like why I've misunderstood the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic tests of copyright in regards to music publishing. However, I, I do think that at some level, I would argue, however, right? It seems to me that the reason the judge does this is because there's so much tension and this is where it gets to like the kind of interesting 
to me, like the heart of this case, right? That there's so much tension between what at a legal level is supposed to be happening and the clear fact that, and like no one would deny that blurred lines draws heavily from got to give it up, right? And it's such a disjunct, like what's able to be captured in publishing and what's able to be captured in the actual groove and feel of the song that the judge seems unable or unwilling to like play, like be a legal hard ass basically (laughs) and allows these other considerations that are maybe not reflected in the law, but like actually fit with how everyone kind of understands music to function in the world allows them into the case. And that's kind of the shocker, right? Because then all of a sudden, all kinds of borrowing that like toes the legal line is potentially up for up for questioning. What you're saying is that it was juicy. <laughs> what, a, what do you mean? <laughs> it was like a juicy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did you and like it they they're the same song. And like the thing is that our our like our copyright system is so far removed from the way that music's actually made that to say there was no relationship between these songs once you heard them, like even a judge who probably should have like towed the line, even this judge was unable to do it. And it, I think that that opens up a whole host of questions about like, should there be a better way to understand the relationships between these songs, given the fact that like at one level, any string of four notes has already been played. And at another level that like cowboy cowbell and keyboard groove and making it sound like a seventies, a seventies cowbell and keyboard groove is like a set of very intentional artistic decisions that right now we have no way of like grappling with. So what you see is this like shift of like the kind of the kind of original reason why we have even have plagiarism laws as well, you know, which was actually to like promote creativity and culture, and 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 now it's like actually doing the well. I mean, it could be argued that it's maybe restricting it now, or it's like creating this whole weird trend and market for like just anything that's similar can be now sued, and we're already beginning to see that with like basically ed sheeran being like a major target constantly everyone's picking on poor ed (laughs) yeah or or you know and like maybe this is like this isn't so much a bullshit lawsuit but you're beginning to see more of these lawsuits for the one i wrote about in the guardian regarding like reggaeton and and the fish market track or you know um so yeah i mean it's like you're just seeing like a lot of more it kind of opened up this whole floodgate of possibilities that is really more or arguably, arguably more restrict, restricting artists and also for this podcast, taking away money that they could possibly earn. Because also one thing, one thing that's happening, and we can get into this maybe later, but one thing that's happening is that songwriters are being retroactively added to tracks because there might be some of these similarities that you've kind of mentioned in regards to this case which means less money for the artist. And I think one example is Olivia Rodrigo. And I think there is even, I I read somewhere, I don't know where it is in my notes, but that she actually did, she's lost like a lot of money, like because of that, that she could have potentially made off of her like massive, massive hit of an album. Yeah. 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 That she, she wrote in Paramore and and a couple other people too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess in the wake of this, right. So this is a stunner of a decision that they find for the jury finds for, the gay estate it's not helped by the these really like we said the court of public opinion comes in here these damning deposition videos were like robin thick it's just like on drugs and kind of being a jerk pharrell is pharrell actually like is incredibly articulate which is unsurprising given the fact that he's in many ways a musical genius um but is like clearly like an operator (laughs) right like pharrell is not like the happy hat wearing (laughs) man in in these depositions like pharrell's like a really smart tough canny guy that like the like i could see a jury being like i think he stole it <laughs> yeah and, no, and i think i think that but i think this made to put a pin on that for a second i think that is also something that just remember to remind ourselves is that like 
the complexities that go into like a musical composition that you just explained and then pairing that with like current like plagiarism laws and you're expecting like the average joe to really kind of be able to like parse this all out and understand that you know in the form of a jury like you know you're not getting musicologists you're not getting musical experts like you know on the stand um as for a judge or like in the jury box and so that's when these sort of other elements come into place like robin thick being wasted or whatever giving his deposition like maybe pharrell not coming off like particularly likable and maybe like a little bit like arrogant like those things like begin to kind of play a role yeah yeah yeah. for sure for sure and 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 the sense that this is kind of out of control i think comes from that again i i i would recommend anyone watching pharrell's testimony oh yeah so we gotta link this shit i came away being like Pharrell is I mean like I knew Pharrell was really really smart and really really articulate but I came away with that being like I would not ever PhD want to get into an argument with Pharrell <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um but so okay so in the wake of this right what you get is kind of the floodgates like like you're saying open up right and all of a sudden all of these lawsuits that seemed like a real stretch are all of a sudden in the realm of possibility. And all kind of major artists, some of them more deserved, some of them way less, get hit by lawsuit after lawsuit. So, uh, like, a couple of things start to happen, I think, right? And it starts to shift the industry in, in a couple of ways. I mean, for one, artists get nervous, right? And songwriters get nervous and they start being really, really careful about what they're writing, which is a problem for all kinds of musical forms that have similarities between songs. I mean, there's like Damon Krakowski, uh, who's a former guest on this podcast, wrote an article at the time that just said originality is a con. And he's right. Right? Like the idea that musicians are like individual geniuses making up unique combinations of sounds that no one else ever could is like capital R romanticism bullshit. It's like music comes from communities. It's listened to in communities. It's enjoyed in communities. It's produced by communities. And copyright is a really, like we've said before, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. And it's really, you know, a, a, a factory for nailing jello to a wall created by the major label system and created by the music industry and perfected by the major label system. Um, and it's an awkward fit with the actualities of human creativity and that this lawsuit and its results really only only highlight that. What's funny, though, I think, is that and there's been less written about this, but I think that... Um, it seems fair to speculate a little bit, which is that at least some of the rush into, in the wake of this lawsuit, all of a sudden, it's a lot better to settle early than it is to go to court, right? And as you say, all of a sudden, there's a lot of people who are borrowing songs that previously maybe wouldn't have gotten sued or Previously, people didn't know what kind of money you could get. And now, all of a sudden, they're cutting folks in as songwriters proactively. And that's step one. And step two, I think, that we've seen in more recent years is all of a sudden, this increases the potential value of a lot of these catalogs. In addition, there's all of this private equity money flowing into these catalogs from older songwriters. And so what you get as the kind of sense of these like behind-the-scenes deals where people who older songwriters get added to new songs as um, as contributors become more and more common, all of a sudden, in some ways, like, the incentive switches. So you move from, like, the gay estate, where their, their primary thing is, like, we've got Marvin Gaye's recordings and songwriting, and, like, that's, the A, the legacy that we're trying to safeguard and prevent people from, like, borrowing or stealing, and also that's, like, as a business, that's how we're getting our money, to a newer version, which is, like, These old recordings are one revenue stream in a streaming economy, but also the IP is another potential revenue stream. And we're going to actually push people to use old IP in new songs, right? That's where you get like that Portugal, that terrible Portugal, the man song, 
like rebel just for kicks, which is the same thing as please Mr. Postman is like to my mind, like the perfect example of that, which is like some executive was like, what if you use please Mr. Postman? I mean, I don't, I don't actually know the genesis of that song, but like taking old IP and being like, instead of saying you can pay us to use it being like, use it. People already know it. It's already a hit. It'll give you a leg up. And if you listen to like, certainly like the hip hop charts, there's a lot of songs that are like, <laughs> um, basically missing you 96, <laughs> but like the, the, the 2023 version. So by this point, right? Like five years after this lawsuit, what you actually do get is the legal system doing kind of its job over time, right? Which is that this was a bad court case in many ways. And it was really problematic because what it did was there was a pro there, there was, there was a, there was a not particularly well-constructed, but at least internally coherent set of standards that people knew to av like avoid crossing. And this lawsuit basically knocked them down but didn't build up any new ones. And so like five years later, what you've started to do is get this, a set of, of major lawsuits that have, have kind of gone the way that Pharrell thought that his would, right? Led Zeppelin does not owe the band Spirit a quadrillion dollars for the fact that Stairway to Heaven sounds slightly like one of their songs. Katy Perry's Dark Horse didn't owe some absurd amount of money to this like christian trap rapper who like has a slightly similar melody ed sheeran has so far like won all of his cases has won all of his cases but at some level i think that like the restructuring that resulted from the lawsuit right this move towards writing people in this move towards interpolation this sense that it's easier just to pay money to the older rights holders has already happened and it seems like has been incredibly important for for the um like the the way the music industry has gone over the last five years and i don't see it slowing down because also like you never know right no one wants to lose millions of dollars and it's easier to just write people in it turns out yeah yeah so so i guess like maybe to like uh like wrap the episode up like maybe we should kind of like talk about things like like I've, i kind of have two questions like one like my first question is how much do you think this is kind of driven by the sort of uh, diminishing uh, returns and profit on for artists because of like streaming that like, oh, like this sort of make like desperation to like find like other revenue streams. And then also, I guess my other question is like, since the, the thing that I mentioned at the top of the show, which is what does this mean for like AI generated music? Because, and this is a whole topic for like another show, but like there are elements of, AI that I think are, regardless of maybe some people's skepticism about it, like are going to help producers like in the studio. But I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like what if that AI helps production uh, accidentally gets a little too, uh, flies a little too close to a, uh, a famous Marvin Gaye track? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think those are really, really good questions. I mean, I think for the first one, right, is the streaming question is my gut is that this is the backdrop to all of this is less about diminishing returns so that like that's clearly important always but more about the fact that like big hit now continues to produce money over a longer period of time right that blurred lines isn't streaming as much as it was obviously but every time a wedding dj plays it someone gets paid in a way that just wasn't true for like when everyone had the Jackson 545 and was still playing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like maybe they generated more money at the tip at, at, at the top, but like that tails lower and right. Albums didn't used to stick around forever in the same way that they do now. I mean, albums went out of print, right? right? Like, and this is also one of the reasons why you've seen like the, the, the rise in like ca these catalogs being sold as well. Right, exactly. And so those, I think, are really linked. And it's interesting. Like, my sense is, and I'm sure there are people who know better, but, like, to what extent does this lawsuit 
which happens in 2018, serve as a starting gun for the movement of private equity and capital into music publishing. It had already started, but I'm just doing like a, a quick like run through of all these companies in my head and the big money comes in after, right? And it does seem to me that like if you're radically expanding the, not just the potential of like what could potentially be a copyright infringement, but also just the likelihood in the wake of this that everyone was going to settle always, right? All of a sudden, the Marvin Gaye estate is worth more, right? Because there's more songs that borrow from it. Or or the real talk, the P-Funk estate is worth more because like, you know, does, you know, a Dr. Dre track really sound like a parliament track? yes like yes like it does it's very different in certain ways but like partially because there's like and this is the thing that i think that uh is really complicated about this and it kind of goes to your second point right the reason that that p-funk track and the dr dre track are really different is because it's a little bit slower and the dre track has dre drums right those drums knock in a way that p-funk drums just don't but there's not a legal language to describe that at any way. There's no there's no non kind of like grab a guy off the street and see if he thinks it sounds the same or have musicologists argue set of legal standards to determine whether being influenced by P-Funk synth playing but adding a new rhythm that allows it to function in a totally different way is enough of a transformation let alone the fact that there's not like a way without kind of backroom deals where you can say, oh, it's 7% and they go, it's 15%. You're like 9% deal, right? Um, there's no legal way to say like, oh, this track is actually, I mean, I guess the judge gave an amount of damages, but like it's either copyright infringement it's or it's not. It's, it's not it's like, not precise, oh, yeah. it's 27% P-Funk, which like it, at some level, ideally you'd want to maybe like, that would be, I mean, maybe not, but like. Yeah, yeah David Krakowski in writing about Blurred Lines kind of like is, he, he writes some things that are kind of similar to like what you're saying in the sense that like he's like Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams didn't make a mechanical reproduction as the term goes of the song, but they did make creative use of Marvin Gaye's original work. And he like later writes, like, I think it would be more accurate to say that Thicke and Williams copied Gaye's work in a more modern manner, highlighting a part of someone else's work as an aspect of their own creative process, as we all do now all the time in the digital realm. And I think if you look at like Dre, it's like Dre is clearly like influenced by like that era, that funkadelic parliament stuff. But yeah. it's like, you know, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's like, and he's like, is he copying the work? It's like, I mean, he's copying the sound in a modern manner and then applying his own touches to it. Like, does that, you know, and so like, but when you, which like as, as Krakowski writes is like totally common. But then when it gets into like the le- the legal weeds, that's when things ter- like get, get into trouble. It's also complicated that in a studio setting, right, copying can look different right right once you have things like reference tracks you know like if i'm basically you know playing um a can type groove with my band and we listened to like a bunch of can albums and then try to play a can groove that's one thing you could also do a thing that i i have i've read or heard in a couple places and like haven't been able to fully track down but like i have i have heard that some people have speculated that making this track pharrell did something like have the marvin gay track put new music on top of it pull the marvin gay track huh interesting <laughs> right I, unable to track that down but like my understanding is that was what uh, some of the experts from the gay estate argued which would like Right. That's again, there's no <laughs> there's there's no no element left of that thing. But it's like it's the fact that, again, that the copyright isn't a good way to deal with these things. And and, and that's really, I think, going to be the issue with AI. Right. So you said at the top of the show, um, not to like date this episode immediately, but that we recently had this AI Drake song and and i think it's important to note like 
there's a couple ways you can have AI music. This is AI voice, AI like uh, voice uh, modulation. So it made who is ever rapping sound like Drake and who's ever singing sound like The Weeknd. There's other ways you can use AI to construct entire tracks. That doesn't quite fully work right. It's very much, it's, you can listen to them at least right now. It'll probably be perfect in like another six to nine months. Who knows? But like, it depends whether we're in a uh, we're in like a exponential growth or we're in S curve. We don't know. But the, right now, if you have a AI produce a whole track, it's very weird. It's like those like uh, images, AI images, where it's like it almost looks like a person, but they're bending kind of wrong, and they've got the wrong number of fingers. Yeah, they and then you look at the hands. You're, you're, you're like, like oh, Ooh. there's something wrong yeah. about this. Like <laughs> the AI music right now sounds almost like music, but it's not. It's very weird and kind of awesome because of that. Yeah. But the the information in a voice, you can copy pretty effectively. And so, like, that is a whole copyright question, right? Like, Drake spent a lot of time figuring, A, building the set of cultural references around his voice, and B, figuring out, like, what how to make his voice the expressive instrument it is. And then someone trained use machine learning and trained on hundreds of hours of like Drake music. I don't know if there's hundreds. It's probably close. Drake's released a lot of music. Um, yeah. And like all of that's in there, even though Drake didn't sound like that. And so it's, it's not right now. My understanding is our copyright laws don't have any way to say, right. If you were a perfect Drake impersonator, I mean, there have been some lawsuits about that. There was uh a Tom Waits impersonator on on a uh, on a commercial, and Tom Waits won a lawsuit. No shit. Um, but they were saying they were too close to a very specific Tom Waits competition, and not doing like a Tom Waits type <laughs> Tom Waits type beat. Um, and but right, like so, there's like these are really big legal questions, and I think that the blurred lines lawsuit is really useful because it useful for precisely for the lack of clarity that it provides for all of this, right? Like blurred lines really just gestures to the fact that there's this gaping hole in the legal infrastructure around music and around musical similarity and that the old rules don't work and that there really aren't new rules except like kind of rule of thummy type situations. But like those aren't, that's not good enough to deal with something as big and complicated as music. And I think it probably goes both ways, right? Like if you think about the actual landscape of the music industry, on one side, you don't want people to be able to, I think, I don't know. I mean, maybe it is like getting rid of innovation. I don't know if this track, which is just like a not very good Drake track, Total side note, you know who comes off like as the most uncopyable person? 40, the producer, right? Because it kind of sounds like Drake and it kind of sounds <laughs> like The Weeknd, but there's no way that 40 would yeah, ever facts. let a track sound <laughs> yeah, that facts. bad come out of his studio, right? But like why the like the shittily recorded piano of that song is the wrong kind <laughs> of shitty piano loop? Like, I don't yeah. know. I, I have no idea how you... Right. But it clearly is right at one level. Like, I don't know. I think that probably just having like new people re release songs that are just carbon, bad carbon copies of famous artists is probably not good. The flip side, you don't want to say like, maybe there's some really cool creative stuff that you could do with other people's voices. There probably is. That's on one side. The flip side is it probably goes both ways. There's about to be all kinds of neat AI art. And one thing that if we've learned one thing from Saxon, you and I's study of the music industry and just also general experience the last eight years of like American life, it's that if you have a lot of money in lawyers, you can quash stuff. You can ruin people's lives even if you lose the lawsuit, right? And my gut is that if everything is really, if it's all blurred lines, <laughs> um, you're going to get the people with the money and power and that's going to be the major labels able to make the landscape that they want best. That means suing who they want to sue.
basically, and tying them up in endless litigation to create whatever whatever reality they want. And, and and I think that actually you probably already see that with like the streaming services deciding to pull down the like whatever you want to call it Drake the weekend AI generated song because and so my thinking like those are two major artists top one percent of probably artists getting played and i just question like would these streaming services do the same if like i made an ai generated song that sounded like i don't know ways blood or something like that and like or probably or, not and this or if drake who is a known jacker of styles <laughs> yeah used, let's talk about that right <laughs> used you know drake used ai to better copy like some dance hall artists flow which seems like totally possible yeah would, would the streaming services would the label step in questionable questionable i mean yeah, no not, they wouldn't right? step in uh, and in, in fact, they'd be very difficult to sue because they have a lot of lawyers on retainer. So basically, yeah, exactly. So basically what we're saying is like, it's almost like a reinforcement of like the sort of hierarchies that are in place. And- which is, yeah, which is, which is kind of like the thing is that when there's not a clear set of legal standards, I mean, it's this funny thing, right? At one level, you want good legal standards, but minus Absolutely. good legal standards, you kind of want legal standards. And having <laughs> just no legal standards at one level, like has been really destructive or at least distracting for like a couple of major artists but i think well, that like that seems like it a said they got better lawyers and didn't have like <laughs> didn't have robin thick being like <laughs> really saying that he considers himself a bad person <laughs> in the in the deposition they go do you consider no honest they're like do you consider yourself an honest person he's like no <laughs> Like shit. Okay, well that there goes that lawsuit. Um Well I'll tell you what, you know what I can't wait for? I can't wait for like the uh the the uh A list celebrity artist beefs about like who's Jack and who's AI style. <laughs> it's a brave new world, buddy. Because <laughs> you know that shit's gonna happen. <laughs> brave new world. Well, on that note, we'll tie a bow in this episode. Um, please rate and review us. Follow us on all the socials. Please subscribe to our newsletter, Music by Bird Language. We'll see you in a few weeks' time. Bye.